not see this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And I apologize for the hiatus. I've had a lot going on in my personal life and a lot of changes happening this year. So we've kind of been a little sporadic this year, but I'm back in the saddle, got my equipment set up and we're coming back uh, in 2019 with a bang because I have an amazing, amazing panelist and a really incredible kind of controversial topic. We're going to be talking about the temple today and temple development in Mormonism. And I have such a great group of panelists, so I'm going to introduce everyone. I'm bringing Christina Rosetti back. Christina, can you say hello? Hello. For those who haven't listened, you're sort of a podcast favorite now. Introduce yourself. Tell us about who you are and why you're on the podcast. My name's Christina. I'm a doctoral candidate at UC Riverside. I study the Mormons, and I'm also the office manager and archivist at Sunstone. And you can listen to Christina on a few episodes that we've done about women's reproduction in Mormonism and the Council of 50, I think we did, and some fundamentalist topics. So thanks for coming back. Uh, and then uh, I'm so excited because I think this is the first time for one of my dear friends and fellow Mormon feminists, uh, Cynthia Bailey Lee. Can you say hello? Hi. All right. Tell us who you are. Uh, so I am a blogger at By Common Consent blog, and I, by day, I am a lecturer in the computer science department at Stanford. And you're going to be here sort of talking about temple changes and because uh, it's 2019. And so when you're listening to this, the LDS Church just announced a few new changes. And so we're going to be talking about those as well. But let let us introduce our last panelist, Devery Anderson. Devery, I've been trying to get you on the podcast to talk about this topic for a long, long time. Can you say hello? Yes, hello, and I'm glad to be here on this one. It's, I'm looking forward to it. So for those who are not familiar, Devery literally wrote the book on the development of temple worship. Devery, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book and what prompted that and, and all about that? Well, this book uh, on the development of LDS temple worship is actually the third of three volumes that chronicle the development right from from Kirtland up through the year 2000. Uh, one book is devoted just to the two months of the Nauvoo Temple and the day-to-day -day activities there. And so these were documentary histories that signature books felt were needed. And the reception has been great. I've uh, had nothing but positive reaction from People at all levels, even general authorities, have mentioned that they use the book, especially the third one, and how, how important they found the information. And so this just really chronicles the history, shows how it developed, shows how it evolved and why. And I think it's an important aspect of Mormonism for people to know about. And I think you shed light on the temple and you shed light on how change comes. It, it opens up, it sheds light on... A, other aspects of Mormonism, not just the temple, but just in general, how things develop and how things change and why we try to meet the needs of a changing world and try to reflect our beliefs in that. And so I think it's the temple is a great place to start with that. I've drawn a lot from your book in this podcast. We've linked to it. And I know a lot of people have, have purchased your book because of this, because people often ask when I'm going to do a podcast on the history of temple changes, because the reality is the temple endowment has sort of changed over time. It's not, we, if you were to go into an LDS temple today, you would not have the same wording and the same, some of the same rituals as early saints did. And we're going to talk about that. Before we get into this, we are going to be talking about the temple. And for all of my non-Mormon listeners out there, you need to know this is a very sensitive topic. So um, several of us on this podcast have been through the temple, myself included, and we call that being endowed. And what that means is we've gone through the temple. The temple is not open to outsiders. It You have to be a faithful, worthy member, and you make special promises. And one of those is to not reveal some of the things discussed in the temple. So maybe we can just have a discussion right now about the parameters, where everyone's comfortable, how, how we're going to talk about this without sort of betraying the faith of some people, uh, the sensibilities of some people, and what we're actually bound to, the promises we're bound to in the temple. So, Devery, how did you do this when you wrote your book? Because obviously, there are some people, I mean, the way that I grew up is we we don't talk about the temple at all. We just kind of, we sing about it. We talk about how beautiful it is on the outside, but we never talk about what goes on on the inside. To, to chronicle the history of the temple, I was able to do it by 
citing diaries of church leaders, general authorities, stake presidents and bishops asking questions to church leaders and, and citing their responses. And a lot of this comes from official publications that have that have been, well, have been published, like the General Handbook of Instructions, talks given by church leaders. All this kind of lays out their chronology. So I took friendly sources, but even through the friendly sources, you, you can you can understand that there's been change and why change was needed. Uh, diaries such as George F. Richards is a very important one because he instigated several changes to temple ritual, to the ordinances and the, the endowment ceremonies mostly. And uh, he writes in his diary about him approaching the brethren about this and the changes he wanted to make and how strongly he felt about it and what their response was. So these friendly sources really put them together, really unfold the whole story. So you don't need to go to exposés to to understand this. You'll get more specifics in exposés, but uh, you can grasp the story and the unfolding and the development of temple worship without going there. And that's what I tried to do in this book. And that's why the book's been well received and have never had a negative response from anybody wondering, why did you do this or how could you have done this? That just hasn't happened. Cynthia, you, I'm going to link to it because, and we're going to talk about the temple changes, the recent temple changes in just a moment, but you blogged about this. So what was kind of your litmus for how to do this in a way that didn't trample on the sacredness of faithful members? Well, it was hard to figure out how to do that because what was interesting about this most recent change is that, um, for what I understand, and I should say I haven't been since January changes, is that there is an instruction saying not only, saying not to talk about it in a way that draws a boundary that is far more restrictive than I think what I had ever understood to be the boundary of what we can and can't say about the temple, you know, growing up as a very faithful member. And so that the kind of uncertainty about exactly what that meant for, for those of us who were trying to say something, but be respectful of that request, there was you know, without going into too lot of detail, I can say there was a lot of chaotic discussion happening with those of us on the blog trying to figure out how to talk about something that was a moment of celebration, that was a moment of grief, that felt like one of the biggest news days in Latter-day Saint life for, you know, a few decades, but that we weren't supposed to talk about, you know? So for me, when I felt like this is what I can do and this will be okay is when the church put up a statement in the newsroom saying, uh, alluding to some changes. And I thought that has to be a green light because I can just link to the newsroom webpage and say they're acknowledging that there were changes. And, and then where I felt like um, a good place to go on that very first day, which is when my post went up, was um, just to express um, recognition of women. And, and in a celebration, but recognizing that there are a lot of different emotional reactions to these changes, but to really center the post on women. So it's an honor roll of women who contributed in all sorts of ways towards us as a people arriving in this moment where we find ourselves here at the beginning of 2019. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think we can do that here. I think that we're going to be able to talk about the development of temple worship. You know, I've always admired the way that Devery has handled this because he talks about changes to the garment and things like that. But for anyone that's uncomfortable, you you can always remember that the church has now, the LDS church has posted pictures of the garments and they have open houses of the temple. And so I think I think we're going to do that in a way that's comfortable. But Christina, I want to hear your feedback because you and I study a lot of fundamentalist groups. And what do you think their threshold is for discussing temple? One of the things that's really interesting is from an outside perspective, when I first started learning about Mormonism, I, of course, want to respect the communities I work with. And I want to honor what is sacred to the people that I interact with and the people I write about. 
And so from an outside perspective, when I first learned about the temple, I was under the impression, which is the official rule technically, that the things you can't talk about are the name signs and tokens, um, which is, you know, the official rule. In the lived reality, Mormons usually will go further than that and not want to talk about any of it. And that's completely understandable. What I have found to be interesting in fundamentalism is Mormon fundamentalists are a lot more willing to talk about the particularities of the temple. Of course, they're not revealing the name, signs, and tokens, but from my just casual interactions and from my discussions with fundamentalists, I have found them to be more willing to discuss the particularities, especially when it comes to the things the LDS Church has changed. Okay, well, I think that... We're going to dive into that a little bit, too, because obviously we have, you know, different Mormon groups to listen to this podcast. So we're going to try to recognize that and be aware of that. We're going to predominantly be talking when we talk about the temple changes, we're talking about the LDS temple right now. And I've said this before in the podcast, but for those who are just tuning in or not going in order, Mormon fundamentalists are kind of all over the map when it comes to temple worship, as are many Mormons and One of the general things that you need to know is that for years, Mormon polygamists especially, or those who believe that they were living the true principles, the higher law of the gospel, would teach their children to face uh, the nearest temple like Mecca and say a rote prayer, ask the church to be set in order and, and pray that the house of the Lord would be open to them. And then in 1970, when the LDS church allowed people of African descent, black people, into the temple... A lot of Mormon fundamentalists believe that the church was really corrupt, that I I believe they said that, you know, the LDS church had desecrated the temples. This is when the AUB starts building their own temples. There are a few other groups that have endowment houses. And in fact, I would say the majority of fundamentalists that I know do some sort of endowment, whether it be in a living room. Uh, You'll hear a lot about plural ceilings being done in someone's family home. There's, you know, altars that are done in living rooms and things like that. But some people actually have designated buildings. So that is sort of how fundamentalists view the temple. But when we're talking about the changes today, we're talking predominantly about the LDS temple and sort of the endowment there. So Cynthia, do you want to, before we get into the history of it, do you want to kind of give us an overview of the new changes And then we're going to like kind of reverse engineer and go back in history. Sure. So the new changes are, well, the most significant changes have to do with the relationship between women and their husbands. Of course, we're talking about heterosexual marriages in a Latter-day Saint temple. And that relationship and the relationship with God and sort of how that triangle of relationships is structured. And... And what was, I think, still uh, what caused a lot of shock and even, you know, over a week later is still causing shock is how much the list of things that sort of asked a Mormon feminist, what are your top 10 kind of irritants in the temple right now, how much the list would align with what actually got changed. Things like um, part of the ceremonial clothing is, and then again, the church has you know published some about this. So I remember many members are not comfortable talking about this, but the the church has talked about this publicly. But part of this ceremonial clothing is a veil that women wear really more as a hat. It's sort of pushed back over the back of the head for most of the time, but then is worn as a veil, in other words, over the front of the face um, for a part of the ceremony. So if non-members are picturing a typical bridal veil that can be worn either front or back, it's the same idea. And that is no longer done. Um, The face is no longer required to be covered. Women were one of the promises that um, women made is a promise to hearken to their husbands as their husbands hearken to the Lord. This was a part that was very distressing, especially for a lot of women with a history of spousal abuse of any kind because the power dynamic that this idea that you should be listening and obeying to your spouse sets up for many women, although I'm sure we can say this was the furthest thing from the intention of the church that it would um, support this, but in practice, that often kind of played into negative relationship dynamics. 
So that no longer happens. Both men and women covenant together to hearken to the Lord, which is how the male half of the room always did that part of the covenant, but it's now the same. Um, So those are two of the big ones. From what I understand, there's also been some just sort of tidying of shortening some of the longer um, dialogue exchanges that are part of the presentation and some other changes like that. Another one moving from the endowment portion to the ceiling, the marriage ritual in the temple, is that before men would promise, so there's a series of exchange of vows very similar to what non-members would be familiar with, um, that each side promises, you know, in sickness and health and so on. That's not the wording of ours, but there's a similar kind of exchange of vows. And part of that script was that men vow to receive their wife and women vowed to give themselves to to the groom. And that has now changed so that it's symmetric and no longer a difference there. One other change that um, I think has gotten less attention is that the word preside has now been added to the sealing ceremony as one uh, word as part of a from what I understand is a somewhat lengthy sort of blessing to the couple about how, um, you know, characterizing how their relationship would ideally move forward that preside. And um, that word is used now in that characterization of an ideal sealed marriage relationship. And that is a word that has a lot of baggage for Mormon feminists. So um, that, that is certainly a thing to discuss. Thank you for that overview. And like I said, I'm going to link to your blog post. This is a big deal in the LDS circles. Of course, it's 2019. So if you're listening to this when this podcast comes out, you're going to probably be aware of it. But, you know, if you're listening to this several years from now, these these changes are going to maybe fall by the wayside and people are going to think that's the way it was always done. Devery or Christina, do you guys want to say anything about these changes before we back way up and go into the history of the temple? Well, one thing I've been wondering about since the change was made regarding the veil, is that going to make a difference with the burial of women? Now, has anybody heard? Uh, because, And this is one thing that was never a secret, because non-Mormons could go to a Mormon funeral and see a deceased endowed Mormon in their temple clothing. And I remember seeing um, deceased women before I was even endowed, and their, fail, their face would get veiled before closing the casket. And I wonder if any of this is going to flow over onto how deceased women are buried. Now, that's just kind of a, an aside, but I, it's, it, I, don't, I don't know if anybody's discussed that yet, but I just wonder kind of if that's going to be an issue or if it is an issue, if they've just resolved it or if it's just not even going to be discussed. Anybody know on that one yet? Because I'm kind of curious. I've heard just a few whisperings of people wondering that, but I haven't seen any, even really any major discussion of it on the blogs, much less uh, an official announcement from the church. I, some little cynical part of me wonders if actually that hadn't, um, that connection or implication there hadn't occurred to anyone who's announcing these changes. And that, that will be something that will be a question that will be sent up from bishops to stake presidents up the, you know, it shouldn't take very long for that to become a question that is asked. Of course, people pass away every day, but I haven't heard anything. And the interesting thing about that, if their faces are, if they're, if they are veiled there, sounds like that's the only time the veil will actually be used as a veil. And if not, then can that part of the clothing be changed to something similar to what the men do, where if it's a veil that's not used as just a symbol of something, then can that be done away with? And will that be a future thing? Seem like it would be. Go to all the trouble making a veil and manufacturing these and they don't get used. And so I, I kind of anticipate that that may go away at some point. Let me ask both of you, because my understanding is the veil is supposed to symbolize a bride. Am I wrong about that? I mean, is that is that the genesis of the veil in the temple? Sort of a traditional lifting of the veil? Because the understanding that I was always taught, especially even with the dead, was 
when we veil, you know, my grandmother in her temple clothes and we, it was sort of this beautiful moment where it was the last thing her kids do. They put the veil down over her face and then they close the casket. And I remember asking my mom about it and she said, well, when grandpa meets her in the next life, he's going to lift the veil like she's a bride. But is, is that, is there any truth to that? I've never heard that, and it might be something that people are making an assumption about. I, I don't recall ever hearing that in any in any way, let alone an official way. So I can't answer that one. Well, let's put a pin in it, and because I want to talk about if we want to talk about what the significance of these this clothing is. But Christina, do you want to say anything about the veil or this before we move on? Yeah, I just I wanted to make a comment about the veil real quick, but also about two additional changes that I think just are worth touching on. Um, in terms of the veil, you know, Christian traditions have been wearing a veil forever. It's not uniquely Mormon. There's Catholic women that go to my cathedral that continue to wear the veil. Granted, it doesn't go over their face, but it is part of Catholic tradition that if you went to mass before 1965, you are required to wear one. Now Don't it's you an have option. To in, like if you go to some of the cathedrals in Italy, you have to veil. Mm-hmm. You have to. Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to cathedrals in a lot of European countries, you have to still cover your shoulders and they would encourage you to wear a veil. Um, here in the U.S., if you go to a mass that is a Latin mass or what we call a Tridentine mass um, that is very traditional, you still have to wear one. And a lot of churches will still have signs saying women are required to veil, single women wearing black veils, married women wearing white veils. So I just wanted to throw out that this idea that, you know, Christian women have worn veils for hundreds of years. Um, the other thing I, is... Christina, I, can you just, just so I can like picture it... Um, we're talking about one of those little like mini things that almost sort of barely covers your forehead or you really should have something that covers your whole face. And no, is so it, it like a very loose like fishnet or? Yeah. No, so it doesn't cover your face at all. So I actually have one. It's um, if you've ever seen like a mantilla, um, like the Spanish style veils that are predominantly lace and they just really kind of cover your hair. Um, and they look like what a lot of contemporary brides, contemporary non-LDS brides would wear on their wedding. Um, they're more, they're, they're very stylistic now. You know, a long time ago, they would have covered your face, but now they're just very stylistic. They're, they're really beautiful, but they're more, I don't know, they look more fashion than function, but they do have a spiritual purpose. So they are different, absolutely. But I just wanted, you know, for context for women who are members of the church who might never have gone to a different Christian tradition, just to throw it out there that I have so many women at my uh, church that still wear a veil. The other thing I wanted to mention is there's two other changes to the temple that I've been really interested in from a scholarly standpoint and kind of looking at how it's going to affect doctrine or how it's going to affect contemporary practice. And that's the first one is that in the temple uh, during the creation narrative, I've heard that now God names Eve uh, when she's created. And that was interesting to me because in the book of Genesis and in the book of Moses, Adam names her. And so I'm wondering how that plays out with LDS views of scripture, LDS views of inspiration of scripture, and what that means for the relationship between scripture and doctrine and scripture and practice. So that's just like some weird like scholarly thing that I've been wondering. But the other one that I think has more practical implications is in the LDS temple, members of the church make promises regarding sexuality. And previously, it dealt, there was legal language involved in that. And now the language involves the law of God in terms of sexuality. And one of the things that's going to be interesting is, you know, according to biblical text and contemporary revelation from the LDS church, the law of God precludes same-sex relationships, but it also includes polygamy. And so I'm kind of going to be interested in what large amounts of people making a covenant regarding this, this, using this new language, what that looks like in terms of the LDS church's relationship with LGBTQ issues, and also the church's relationship with the potential future practice of polygamy. Yeah, thanks, Christina, for bringing up those two. Those are two really important ones that I should not have forgotten. But you kind of said that the the who names Eve is maybe more of scholarly interest, but if if I can just say as, you know, more of a lived experience as a Mormon woman, that detail actually was one that was hard for me. I felt like the way the story often felt to me as I was listening was that it's this very traditional, like Joseph Campbell style heroes arc for Adam, 
And as part of his hero's journey, he needs plants and animals to eat. And he also needs someone to be with him. And so um, the fact that he names the animals and a names Eve mm. made me, I felt like I was being compared to an animal. And that, that's interesting. Uh, I had never, I had never considered it that way. While we're on the topic really quick, Cynthia, can you explain why? Because I think that there are some people listening that wouldn't understand why, you know, some Mormon women might not like veiling or might think that this is a good uh, a good thing because like Christina pointed out it's not new you know women have been veiling they veil in different religious traditions so why were some Mormon women uncomfortable with veiling well so there's just the symbolism that that was bothersome this idea that we need to be covered it was never clear in the text whether we're covering to protect a sort of divine presence from us or whether we're being protected by the veil. But it, and I am sure you could find Mormon women who sort of experienced it either way. But, but for a lot of Mormon women, it did feel like somehow we needed to be covered up because we weren't as pure or good or something. And so that was bothersome, the symbolism of it. But again, if I can just throw out a sort of a lived experience thing, I very strongly disliked veiling for very practical reason that the fabric of the veil that I had was just not breathable. And so that was a very physically uncomfortable part of the ceremony for me to feel like um, I was just as time went on, the longer this thing is down, I'm breathing this more and more recycled air and just brought up some sort of claustrophobia reaction. And I've heard that from other women again. And again, I would never say that's like a characterize that as a universal feeling about that part. But that's one reason I was asking Christina about the construction and fabric of these other veils. I think if it had been just sort of like, if you imagine like a 19... 50s pillbox hat with this little miniature net that sort of barely covers your forehead. If, if that's what we meant by veil, then I personally would have found it a lot less objectionable. But. I, I think something you said early on really struck me is that, you know, when I went through catechism and became Catholic, we learned a lot of the symbolism of our cathedral. We learned what all the statues meant. We learned what the rosary meant. We learned and a lot of women who chose the devotion of the veil learned what the veil meant. Temple prep and the decision not to talk about the temple has created a culture where people do things in the temple that they have no idea what they mean. And there's a lot of rich history and tradition behind the temple that most people, especially in my age group, have no idea about. They don't know the history of the temple. They don't know what the symbolism means. And, you know, you go to temple prep and you think you learn what things, what's going to happen. And then you go and no one explained what the veil was. And so I think that's something that's really hard is as I'm seeing all these blog posts and all of these ideas about what the veil meant and why it was important. There's such diverse opinion, but there's no official opinion and there's no official statement on why women ever did this. And I think that's also damaging is to sit in this feeling of uncomfortability about something and never have your leaders tell you why it happened in the first place. And and to add to that, you know, my lived experience, since we're going to talk about this for just a minute, I went to temple prep. I was always told that the temple was the higher law. And it was kind of this exciting thing, like all my entire youth experience was to prepare for the temple. We had lessons about it as youth. We sang songs about it as youth. And we were told someday you're going to get into the temple. That's the goal. And so I did. And when I went through the temple for the first time, well, first of all, temple prep was what Christina mentioned. It, it almost reminds me of how we talk about sexuality in the church. And so we'll talk about how I, I, I've said this before, but I once had I was a young woman leader, and we had to talk about chastity, which is uh, basically in Mormon parlance means talking about sex, right? And what and not having sex. And so the bishop came and said to the leaders, "I want to teach this lesson because youth nowadays need." very direct, bold 
statements on this. We can't dance around this. And I was like, yes, thank goodness. This is what we need. So he came in and he just, it was the same old stuff. He said no necking and petting. And I still don't know what petting is. I still don't know. And that's what temple prep felt like. It felt like they talked around it and they used all this sort of coded language, but it didn't prepare me at all. And and we really relied on it. Really relied on my mom and she relied on her mom. And so we relied on their interpretations of what they thought it meant. And so that's kind of, it, it's so interesting because Mormonism is correlated now. And yet for these sacred things, we really rely on sort of folk doctrine and things like that. And so I remember going through the temple and I, unlike a lot of Mormon feminists, I didn't pay attention. I didn't realize that I was like, you know, covenanting to obey my husband as he obeys God. Instead, I was just like, I think I'm not getting it. Like I, there was this whole big higher law and I'm not getting it. And I think a lot of people just leave the experience confused because it's, we don't have any meaning. And I wasn't really gifted with tools to understand symbolism as a Mormon. I, I had a very literal Mormon experience. So when I went to the temple, I thought it was almost a history lesson of like how the earth was created. So I want to I want to get into the the history and what I think I should do really quick is for those listening, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what the temple is now. And anyone can chime in and correct me if I get this wrong. But the gist is you go when you're worthy. You have to be um, of a certain age. Is there an age limit now? My understanding was like 18 when you go through the temple. I would imagine. I suppose some people get married still at 17 or something. I don't know if, if in that case, if it's a marriage, if you can go younger. But I I would think probably 18 is... And so is let's just talk traditionally. General. I don't know if there's exceptions or not. Really. I, I have heard of, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, women who were 16 or 17 that got married were sometimes went through the temple, just depended. Christina, no? Are you saying no? No, you're you're 100 percent right. <laughs> okay, I was just like maybe maybe I've got that off. But the traditional, if you're doing it the quote unquote right way, you are worthy. You go through a temple, recommend interview with your bishop, and then your stake president, where they ask you questions to determine if you're worthy. Because the idea is no unclean thing can be in the presence of God, and the temple is sort of a a, a way to commune with God, and so they want you to be pure in spirit. And you go to temple prep class, which I mentioned was not very helpful for me. And then you have these clothes that you buy that are white, most white, mostly white. And then you go through the temple and you go through a washing and anointing ceremony where they almost, it's like a prayer and they say certain things to you and make certain promises as they touch your skin. And we'll talk about how that's developed. But I think right now it's just sort of symbolic, right? You you get to wear your clothing now. You don't have to be naked or under a sheet like some of us were. And it's just all very symbolic. And then you go and you sit in rooms and they used to do a live action um, where people would actors would come in. But now they have movies and it's just talks about the creation of the of the world. Adam and Eve, like we talked about how the world was created, how Adam named the animals. And in Mormonism, there are three degrees of glory in heaven, terrestrial, telestial, celestial and the temple sort of mimics those. So you move from one room to the next to the next till you end up in the celestial room. Uh, is is that the basic gist of it? And and the understanding is you learn covenants and and signs and tokens that will help you be called up in the last days. So God will know you're one of the pure and anointed. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, and I think they've often character in official publications they characterize it as just the journey from pre-earth life through exaltation and the stops and bumps along the way type thing. And so it's a journey. And so it begins with the creation and part of the, this world is considered the telestial world, you know, the world we live in right now. And so sin and temptation and all of that, which everyone goes through is portrayed there. You go to the next level and finally um, into the celestial room. And that's the marks the end of that journey through exaltation and so so yeah that's basically it most official sources i i see really refers to it as like the unfolding the plan of salvation and taking you through from one end to the other and some of the old temples you actually physically move rooms and in some of the newer temples they just like they have some ways that they change the film and the lighting and stuff so you feel like you're moving rooms it just depends on so that's kind of what is going on in lds temples now but devry let's back up 
And let's talk about why the temple ceremony even exists at all. I mean, a lot of people will say it's Masonic, that Joseph Smith basically ripped off masonry and wanted to have, a, you know, like a, a boys club. And uh, so that's one theory. Another theory is it, it's totally uh, related to polygamy. And we can dive into that in a minute. But from your research, why was the temple endowment, why was the temple even necessary in Mormonism? Well, it's interesting. Going back to the beginning uh, in the Kirtland period, well, there was always this talk in Revelation about a forthcoming endowment, endowment of power and that. And it was viewed as being fulfilled, I think, initially during a conference when the high priesthood was given. But then when Joseph Smith established the School of the Prophets, he began the ritual of washing of feet. And that there wasn't anything eternal about it. It was kind of a way to create this brotherhood. Uh, this And it was a purifying act, but it wasn't considered essential to salvation. But it was something that brought the School of the Prophets together. And when the Kirtland Temple was Around the time of the dedication, the washing expanded to being washed and anointed. And then, of course, but between that part of that Kirtland endowment that just involved washing and anointing, and when Joseph Smith established the full endowment in Nauvoo, between that, uh, and it wasn't long, it was just a month or two before uh, establishing the full endowment ceremony, he did uh, establish a, a Masonic lodge in in, the, in Nauvoo upstairs at his red brick store, the same room that he organized the Relief Society uh, also in March of 42, and then introduced the endowment ceremony in May of, of 42. The people that he endowed, the nine men involved in May of 1842, when he first revealed the endowment, these men were all Masons, every one of them. And so it was clear that he wanted to show them this connection between Masonry and the endowment. There was the connection, you know, I think in the clothing and in some of the signs and tokens and penalties, that type of thing. But Masonry was more of a fraternal organization. The endowment had the, all these spiritual elements to it that the Masonic one didn't have. But he taught these men, and we, we know he taught them this because Heber C. Kimball made a reference in a letter saying, uh, Brother Joseph has said that um, the endowment, I think he called it the priesthood, or he said the, endow the masonry was the corrupt version of uh, the endowment, basically, of, of the priesthood, and that he was restoring the true masonry. And so... <laughs> He, he added all these other elements that had nothing to do with masonry, but the, the connection is so clear that it seems clear that the one prompted the other. And from a faithful Mormon perspective, it's easy to feel that he inquired perhaps about masonry and was given a more eternal ceremony of eternal significance. And I think people can accept that and, and that's fine. But whether there is also this connection with uh, polygamy is important because Joseph Smith had been practicing polygamy, you know, he, you know, early on a little bit, but then in Nauvoo, starting in 1841. And polygamy required a lot of secrecy. And creating this elite group that were all polygamy insiders and providing this ceremony. And one of the things that Brigham Young said about the, one of the one of the important parts about the endowment was to prove that people can keep a secret. And so a lot of people speculated, well, was this Joseph Smith's way of keeping polygamy on the inside? putting people in a position where they promise, make certain promises that if they go outside of those, their eternal salvation's at stake. And that's certainly been talked about in, in literature and in studies of the temple that had there never been polygamy, would we have an endowment? You know, that's something to, that deserves a, a you know long, lengthy discussion. I think there's evidence for that. And I think there's evidence against it too. When you think how, what all he included in the ceremony that perhaps didn't need to be there just to cover polygamy. So I think there's, you can... You can look at it both ways, and I think there's some arguments either way. But that, but but then beyond that, he established, of course, the sealing ordinances. Baptism for the dead had already been established by, or at least the revelation about it in 1840. Baptism for the dead were going on outside of the temple until the font was established in Nauvoo. So there were these other kind of related temple ordinances, and then sealing, sealing husbands and wives, and establishing the second anointing. But Devery, can I can I just interject one second? Yeah. So when you talked about Joseph Smith was talking about restoring a higher order of masonry, that is a theme that I think where polygamy comes in because we're calling it polygamy, but Joseph Smith was an adamant denier of polygamy. He didn't practice polygamy. He practiced plural marriage, which was right. the higher law, the restored order. Celestial marriage. Because that's whenever any references to celestial marriage back then were always re referencing polygamy. And I, I mean, that's, I so they that's saw it as they, something higher than... 
Yeah, I think that this is yeah. why we call it the higher law. I mean, the higher law, and Christina, <laughs> Christina's like chomping at the bit. She has words to say on this. But this is, this uh-huh. is the practice. I've said this before a lot on this podcast, Mormonism, and you'll still find this. Like when you go to talk to the FLDS, I was talking to a faithful woman and I said, I heard that one of Warren Jeffs's wives, Annette, is the prophetess she's running Short Creek while Warren's in prison. And the faithful FLDS woman said, oh, she's not a part of us anymore. And I was like, really? The, the Like Warren Jeffs kicked out his wife? And I asked another, an ex-FLDS member about it. I said, she said something really weird. She used really weird language. She said, Annette is not a part of us anymore. And he said, oh, that's because she was set apart. Meaning she was set apart to run the town. But that's sort of the way that... FLDS protect their sacred things from outsiders, right? They're not lying. They're just using a different way of speaking. And this is a long tradition in Mormonism. We still do it today, I think. And that's why polygamy is so tied into this. But Christina, go. (laughs) This is the thing that I've been railing against. So throughout this conversation, especially talking about the past and talking about the history of the endowment, the phrase higher law comes up all the time because historically it wasn't polygamy. It was plural marriage and plural marriage was the higher law. And if you go to fundamentalist communities today, they still talk about how the LDS church is the lower law and we're the higher law. Not just polygamy, um, but law of consecration as well. Law of right? consecration too, absolutely. Um, it's the fullness of the gospel. that, with, And you tie in the Adam-God doctrine and that is Mormonism. Yeah, that's the other the term, the fullness. So if you go down and ask even ex-FLDS members, you'll say, do you believe in Mormonism? And they'll say, I believe in the fullness of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you go to uh, the Apostolic United Brethren, they talk about how they're practicing the higher law. Um, you go to church in the morning with the LDS people, you learn the lower law, and then you come and learn the higher law in the afternoon. And one of the things that is now really interesting is the phrase higher law is now in the temple. It is part of a covenant. And something that is interesting is people who know the history of that phrase, that might potentially be a challenge to covenant to the higher law. And the other one that is even more interesting to me are the active fundamentalists that still go to the LDS temple are now covenanting to something that they already believe in. And so I think that's an interesting tension. It's a very peculiar phrase to throw into the temple ceremony given its sordid history. And so I'm curious the choice to use that phrase, especially in a ritual that has such an underlying past with polygamy. I, I, so I'm going to speculate, and Brian Hales, if you're listening, you could come in and correct me. But Brian Hales gets a lot of flack. We talk about this because he always says, you know, DNC 132 is not the celestial marriage. It's celestial marriage is not polygamy. And everyone's like, he's lying. How could he lie about that? But Brian Hales is actually not wrong. I mean, in the last century of Mormonism, I sorry, in the 20th century of Mormonism, as the church was moving away from this, we've talked about this on the podcast. The LDS Church made a concerted effort. We've got McConkie, we've got J. Reuben Clark. We have a lot of these guys who are deliberately reframing the language of DNC 132 of celestial marriage to mean monogamous marriage. So I can see that there might be an argument that they're doing the same thing with the higher law to mean higher law now is monogamy. I there's no evidence to support that, but that is one loophole I think that could be used. The The only reason I would push back on that a little bit is celestial marriage is a term that people use and it's okay to use. It's okay to talk about celestial marriage. Uh, People talk about being part of a celestial marriage. The problem with the way the higher law is used is it's put in a specific part of the temple that people aren't comfortable talking about. And so I can just see it now. This is a scenario that I can just see happening because study groups are now allowed. So I can 100% see someone, a man starting a study group. And he's like, we're going to study the higher law because that's part of our church now. And all of a sudden he's a prophet. Um, like I just see this becoming a I strange mean, it's, thing. It's already happening. I got a message the other day from a woman whose father is, uh, he's like a Sunday school teacher and a seminary teacher and they're up in Idaho and they have invented their own ordinances where they go pour some like holy water on the ground, you know, and, and it's very faithful to them. They don't see this as incompatible with the church, but they take these, these things like the higher law and they think, Hmm, that's interesting. What is absent? And then they go digging into the history and these documents and they find the answers they're looking for. And that goes back to the concern about not teaching the history and the symbolism, because without a official opinion and official discourse on what this means, people are going to go find out that it meant plural marriage. 
And then what does that do for a faithful woman? Or what does that do for a faithful family that just got sealed um, without any kind of official discussion of this word and these phrases and kind of pretending the history never happened? This is kind of what happens. Before we move on to Devery, Cynthia, do you have anything you want to say about this? I would just say that like so many things in Mormonism, I think a lot of people in the institutional church would sort of view the the lack of discourse um, on these things as a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. That creates a sort of Rorschach test where it can just sort of mean what people want it to mean. Of course, preside is one of these words, right? Where feminists say, we don't like that word. It means that men preside over us. It means that they govern us, that they rule over us. Preside is a very hierarchical relationship. It's a very authoritarian kind of relationship. And then the apologists for that word would say, well, that's not what it means at all. It actually means an equal partnership. And you're just kind of left with this. Okay. (laughs) So this is why you um, have like stepfathers saying, you know, to their stepdaughters that I am, you know, molesting you and it's okay because I covenanted in the temple to take on plural wives or, you know, husbands that are abusing their wives and saying, you covenanted to preside over me and this is this is how we're doing it. Because that is also, it's an uncomfortable, dark interpretation, but it's not a un- completely unfair one. Yeah. And I think, you know, a sort of like pro-social function that this squishiness around language could perform is that it provides some like sort of flexibility, plasticity to bridge major generational shifts. Or now, you know, people talk about differences in how things are received or interpreted or or whether they're acceptable and not culturally in different parts of the world. So geographic variation that it can act as this bridge, because if it's a Rorschach test, if preside means whatever you want it to be, then no one can say it's offensive because we'll just say, well, whatever it is about it that offends you is not what it means. And we can give one explanation of what it means in one population, whether that's, again, generationally or geographically or whatever, and then a different explanation somewhere else. And, and I say pro-social, even though that sounds, what I just described maybe sounds sort of dishonest, because uh, change is difficult. And in a church with millions of people with millions of different views, um, facilitating a sort of graceful transition is, I think, sort of a defensible purpose for language. But... Um, but of course, there are a lot of harms that can happen with that as well, that people can be made to feel like, um, you know, they're sort of gaslighting around, you know, isn't this what it obviously means? Well, no, you know, <laughs> so um, there's a lot of problems there, too. But um, but I think for all those reasons, it's very unlikely that the church is ever going to publish a book that says, here is the breakdown of all the symbols and language that we use. And and Cynthia, Cynthia and I actually had sort of a robust discussion behind the scenes about this because uh, we were talking about the, the term the law of chastity and someone had speculated that the new language was further solidifying sort of a heteronormative temple ceremony, which which made it so, you know, gay members of the church could never get married in the temple with the new language. And I was like, oh, that's concerning. And Cynthia kind of pushed back and said, I, I don't think it's that calculated. I would say that change was concer- was very concerning to me. But in practical terms, did it change much? The church has been very unambiguous that um, same-sex married couples um, and their children are not even really welcome in the church, much less in the temple, which has additional qualifications associated with it. So I don't think anyone was thinking that there was in practice, any kind of loophole there that if law of chastity was being tied to um, a, a legal marriage in the government jurisdiction where you happen to live, 
that a change in that government's definition of marriage would would somehow create a loophole that now made, you know, would change what was happening in the temple or or what the church thought was okay. So in that sense, I don't I don't think anything changed in practice, but of course, words matter. Words um, have impact on the people who hear them and and can be very hurtful if it feels like the words are changing in ways that that harm and exclude. So in, in that sense, I think this change is very concerning. I see that change and the use of the word preside. Um, there's sort of a, a bunch of things about what change that to me fit a pattern of aligning what was happening in the temple with the proclamation on the family. And maybe in some ways that were helpful, of course, we have no idea what happened in any meetings, you know, where these changes were discussed. But I could imagine a scenario where someone who's advocating for making things more equal for women could leverage language in the proclamation saying, well, women are supposed to be equal partners. Maybe we need to change the way this Harkin thing is happening. And so it could have served some um, useful leverage for positive change. But then, of course, um, with that comes the problems with the proclamation on the family that are the word preside, the fact that the whole reason it exists was for really to serve a legal purpose for litigation that the church was involved in in attempting to um, oppose same-sex marriage. So, so I view it as unfortunate, given the history of the document and its purpose, to have any part of it in the temple now, even though I can see that maybe it might have played some positive role as well. And I like your term squishiness, because I think that this, this kind of sums it up. It, to me, this just seems like part of the course where there's this Mormon doublespeak, right, where we can use language to mean one thing now, but if society and the church sort of shifts in the future, then we can say, oh, it never meant that, it meant this. Uh, but we're coming, we're coming on an hour, so I'm going to, I'm going to stop right here and we're going to make this episode one. And then we're going to return back for episode two, where we're going to talk more about the history and same panelists and everything. So I just want to thank you guys for coming on and thank everyone for listening. Thanks. Thank you. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.